Hello and welcome to the December 31st edition of Ukraine Without Hype, our end-of-the-year edition where we'll go over the major headlines of the year, what we thought would happen, and what we think will happen. Uh, so I am, as always, Anthony Bardaway here with Romeo Kratsky. Hey folks, and Happy New Year's. Happy New Year all. So, thinking back to, we've, we've had two New Year's specials or whatever so far, and I want to first kind of look back to where we were last year when we were going over the, the New Year. We recorded at your apartment, I remember, um, before we were getting ready to have our, the New Year celebrations. And at the time, the biggest difference is that at the time we had all the major power out outages. Uh, I thought it was a small miracle that we still had electricity um, for, for New Year last year. Um, we were on the schedule of getting, you know, two hours of electricity a day or something like that. And that's not something we have to deal with this year uh, through a combination of preparedness and air defense, keeping Russian missiles more at bay than they were last year. We have that major, major improvement. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> Honestly, my memory is something we were talking about even before we started um, recording that the war has thrown my sense of time just completely out the window. Um, things that happened in February of 22 may as well have happened yesterday for all I can recall. Um, things that happened a year ago may as well happen 10 years ago. It's, it's, it's a really weird kind of mind space to exist in, um, to be quite honest with you. Uh but there have been um, some definite changes. I mean, the, the 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 fact, like you mentioned, that we don't have to worry so much about blackouts. Um, this is definitely a welcome welcome change. Uh, that was that was not a fun year. Um, this year was also not not very fun, but for thankfully uh, different reasons. Yeah, as far as life being able to continue on, having electricity is very important. And we really can't understate how important these Patriot missile defense systems have been. Um, of course, just two days ago now, there was a the largest missile attack of the war. After after the after the first day, there were more missiles, but since then, something like a hundred and fifty plus missiles in total. Yeah, something like that. Uh, and against every city in the country, almost against a few small cities, Konotop was hit as well. For example, um, a few dozen people were killed, but it shows how Russia is capable of killing people still, but there was only very minor damage to Ukrainian infrastructure as a result of that. And obviously it's a massive tragedy, but the fact that Russia was not able to actually accomplish anything with it other than cause human suffering. And really, I think to them, the baseline ability to cause human suffering is really all they're after. Uh, in the in the, the meta sense of the term, it, it is um, better than what that strike would have been last year. And uh, it's kind of grim to think about in that we're thinking of how a missile attack that kills dozens of people is somehow preferable to a missile attack that kills dozens of people and also knocks out the infrastructure of half the cities in the country as well, which is what it would have been. You have to look for the silver linings. If we think back to 22, 
an attack third that size would have absolutely put us all in blackouts or at the very least in power rationing um, for weeks and weeks. Um, and the fact that that isn't even an option, um, the energy ministry has, uh, and Ukrainergo, which is the national um, power company, uh, they've both repeatedly said that there are basically no real problems with the energy supply. Um, whenever, whenever there is a temporary deficit, they, um, quickly go ahead and import from Europe. Uh, thanks to the fact that we are on the European grid now. Um, so it's pretty much in, in impossible to, to, to think of being plunged back into darkness like we were in 22. Um, though anything is technically possible, but it doesn't seem very likely nowadays. Nowadays, um, this massive, massive attack, uh, yeah, just kills people, ruins buildings, um, causes misery and destruction. Um, but nothing, nothing beyond that, which by itself obviously is, is bad enough. And most of it was intercepted. So it could have killed a lot more people if it wasn't for the far upgraded air defense that we have now. Yeah, absolutely. Between NASIMs and Iris T's and the, uh, Patriots, um, Kiev is pretty well defended. Uh, though, unfortunately, other cities are not quite as lucky. Which kind of brings us right into the update of the various big, the big headlines of the year. Because the other thing that we talked about in that beginning of year episode was how the main story was about the battle for Bakhmut. This time, last, in, you know, 365 days ago, uh, Russia was gradually closing in on the city of Bakhmut in the Donetsk Oblast. Um, they had captured Solidar. Uh, a few months beforehand, and we're moving in on uh, that axis of of kind of Ukrainian settlements in the Donetsk region. And Bakhmut was kind of the beginning of the cluster of cities, including, you know, um, Slovyansk, etc., which are, you know, the most important part of the oblast. Um, as they were closing in, um, there, we were hearing more stories about the Wagner Group, the main Russian unit, the mercenary company under Evgeny Prigozhin, who was leading the effort there through a combination of their, you know, veteran, well-trained uh, mercenaries, along with penal legions of people recruited straight out of prison in exchange for their freedom in, uh, with a couple of months of service. The Battle of Bakhmut was very bloody um, for the Russians and also for the Ukrainians. It took a very long time until uh, the final capture of the city in around mid-May. So the battle kind of began in the late part of last year and took until mid-May to, to finally conclude. Uh, and what that did in the meta sense, um, I mean, we're not going to cover the ins and outs of how the battle went, but in the meta sense, it taught a few lessons. Um, one of them was that uh, on the Ukrainian side, anyway, there has been a lot of concern over, did we hold on to Bakhmut too long? Um, did Ukrainian soldiers stay in disadvantageous positions longer than they should have uh, compared to the cost inflicted on the Russians? 
And on the other side, the cost inflicted onto the Russians was that the Wagner Group was basically decimated. Uh, they were eliminated as you know a viable, uh, large-scale anyway, military force, which was the best force that the Russians had to offer. And because of uh, the next topic we'll be going in, well, the topic after next we'll be going into, they no longer exist. Well, not in any real sense. Not, yeah, they kind of reformatted a bit as, we'll talk about that in a second. But we have this, I don't know, weird balance of play in that it was so, so damaging on the Russians in order to take it that they have not been able to really accomplish anything since then. And mind you, they haven't been able to capitalize on their capture of Bakhmut. They haven't been able Absolutely to push Ukrainian defense lines back. Uh, the, the battle, while the city itself is captured, the Ukrainian forces are still basically located right outside. There's not. The Russians didn't really buy themselves a lot of breathing room um, with the capture of Bakhmut. Yeah, absolutely. And since then, Ukraine has kind of um, taken portions of territory to the north and south of the city, as you know, we've talked about in all the episodes ever since then. So, the, like we've been saying, the actual goal in the Donetsk region ultimately is Slovyansk. Slovyansk is the the linchpin of everything in Kramatorsk. Uh, are the the two cities that are more important than anything, and everything else is just a setup to whatever that battle would be. And at the end of the day, the Battle of Bakhmut did not move forward with Russia's goals there. There was concern about Chasivyar. Chasivyar was kind of the the line of defense immediately behind Bakhmut before getting to that line of cities uh, in Donetsk region, and it was threatened there for a bit. The Russians were immediately to the south of Chasivyar, like threatening the. The, the stronghold there, which is unlike Bakhmut, you know, elevated location, uh, better entrenchments, a much more important strong point. And the Russians were pushed away from it to the point where now it's not really under threat. Like it's, you know, <laughs> it's absolutely clobbered by artillery all the time. You can't live there. But as a military point, uh, it's pretty secure at the moment. So Russia didn't really gain anything from capturing Bakhmut. But unfortunately, that was far from the end of Russians' actions alongside the entire front. And um, fast forward just a few weeks after the capture of Bakhmut, uh, the Russians decided to try and advance their goals in a completely different way by blowing up the Kahovka Dam, which was one of the largest reservoirs in Ukraine. And that devastated just uncountable of uh, of environment and farmlands and settlements and human lives for that matter. And if you're a regular listener of the channel, you might remember that Anthony visited the region not long after the reservoir was destroyed. Yeah, I was in Herson City while the city was still flooded. Um, so, you know, there's not, it was not a very pleasant time. Uh, the Russians during the whole time were shelling the city. They're still shelling the city, uh, but they were directly attacking and targeting humanitarian aid workers, myself included at one point. Um, but also like every day you'd hear stories from different people who at some evacuation point at some distribution point were directly hit by uh, Russian artillery. So it wasn't just me. It was a lot of people. And if we look to the other side of the river that Russia was occupying, you know, there was no humanitarian effort there whatsoever. The Russians, as far as we know, nothing. there has never been humanitarian effort in occupied no. Russian 
Not not any. The Russians did absolutely nothing to help the people living there. And beyond that, when people actually tried to escape, they were blocked from leaving by the Russian army. Um, so they were trapped in this flooded area. So the scale of the devastation on the Ukrainian-controlled side, the, the Western Bank, were um, is a lot of it has been fixed by now, uh, or at least has been uh, contained, compensated for. Um, and there, the, there wasn't so much flooding. There was like a couple of districts in Kherson city that were flooded because they're very low lying, but because uh, just the topography of the area of the Ukrainian controlled side being higher, um, there wasn't so much flooding there. But the Russian side, the Russian controlled side being much flatter, being much more closer to sea level, uh, it was much worse there. And we just don't know. We don't know how much damage there was because the Russians don't care at all. Just uh, honestly, one of the biggest quest open questions of the war so far, and one of the um, the the biggest atrocities that have been, that has been committed that we don't even have really uh, evidence for. Like, not so much evidence that we 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 have. We don't know pretty much anything. You can point at, for example, Mariupol, and you can say, "Well, look, you can see the city has been completely ruined." We can look at the pre-war population. We can estimate how many people um, approximately were able to to evacuate prior to um, the city's utter ruination. Um, but when it comes to uh, occupied Kherson Oblast, um, we have basically no idea. No idea how many people died, how many villages were washed away, um, what the epidemiological situation is, what the environmental situation there is. There is zero, basically, information. Um, at times, there are reports of partisan activity in occupied Harrison Oblast, um, but obviously partisans are not going to be able to provide you with uh, a whole um a holistic overview of uh, what the situation in, in occupied Kherson Oblast looks like post the Kohovka Dam explosion. Um, but I think uh, there is another question beyond just the scale. What is the scale of the atrocity? And that's why did the Russians do it? And, and what did they hope to accomplish? What did they actually accomplish? Oh, that's a very tough question. I think part of it was that uh, at the time, there were starting to be reports of cross river raids. There were starting to be the beginnings of what we now call the river war. Um, even during the flooding, uh, there were Ukrainian special forces and other volunteers who actually crossed the river into Russian controlled territory in order to provide some semblance of humanitarian aid, which of course the Russians fired on. I think a couple people died while doing this in Russian controlled territory. And I think they really were concerned partially about the growth of this river war and wanted to cause some kind of damage to it. There was reports during the liberation of Kherson that the Russians were going to blow the dam then in order to deny Ukraine the ability to go to like to capitalize on on the offensive and push you push the Russians even further. Um logically though that obviously didn't do anything because the river war has only picked up and to the point where a lot of the eastern bank of the the Dnipro River in the Kherson region is currently controlled by Ukrainian forces. Uh so obviously that didn't work. 
why did they do it? It's one of those things where like logically do the Russians do many things that logically make sense? Not really. I think they're just going for something. (laughs) And I think even it's very possible that this could have been even like a lower level decision that some group in the Russian military said, screw it. This will cause some damage. Let's do it. So who who knows the decision-making process was there even trying to wrap your head around it. It, it's confusing. It's very confusing. After all, they had to withdraw a whole bunch of their own units from those low-lying regions uh, themselves. Uh, that, like that—that that is maybe that territory is underwater now. Uh, but that still represents a a net loss of territory for the Russians. Um, maybe they think that it'll be fine if they can capture the rest of Kherson. But again, they've made it more difficult for themselves to commit cross river uh, raids and assaults. Well, that that actually wasn't that big of a deal. Like I was there as the waters are receding, you know, back to their normal levels, and the Russians just kind of followed it in. Like as the flood was coming in, most of them got out of the way. Like there are a few dead Russian soldiers in the flooding, but when did Russia start caring about a few dead Russian soldiers? They don't even care about a lot of dead Russian soldiers. They don't. It's not. It does. It's a non-factor. It's, it doesn't matter. So as so like in the first day of the flooding, uh, there wasn't as much fire because the Russians were further away. And as the flood waters receded, there was more and more Russian fire because they got closer and closer as you know, following the water back back uh back to where it was. So it really wasn't that much of a loss for them either. Um they're talking about, oh, they washed away some trenches on the the bank of the river. Well, most of them were set back from the river so they couldn't be shot at by Ukrainians anyway. It wasn't it wasn't a huge change in that regard. So if we look now, you know, six months later, um the, the dam was blown up on June sixth. Uh so basically half a year. Um and the, the destruction of the dam didn't do anything except cause a human environmental disaster. And militarily it doesn't seem to have had any effect. No, there was I've gone about this uh, a few times, like as I've returned back to the Kherson region, the Nebro River. Um it's there's talk a bit of it like making it easier for cross border, cross river raids to happen further upstream like where the where the reservoir was now that there's no reservoir that's no that like there's still a very large river there uh there's still multiple large rivers there actually instead of one big one it's several still large but smaller ones so it didn't make any attack across the reservoir any easier militarily makes no sense the again the only thing because i've been back a few times right now there's still a very big concern about water the ground the groundwater has been draining away so you have to dig deeper and deeper wells you can't, you know, use the reservoir like you used to. Um, in order to get to the water, you have to go much, much further, uh, further away from the town, and therefore closer to the Russian lines. Which means that um, if you are going to go down to the water, which uh, is not what they want you to do, uh, not what the Ukrainian military wants you to do, then you put yourself much more at risk to Russian attack. Um, the last time I was there, there was some fisherman a couple kilometers away from me who was hit by a Russian shell and killed. 
um, partially because he had to move much closer into range in order to do it. So it just made the life of everyone down there absolute hell. And honestly, I think that's that's enough for Russians to call it a win. But also in June, a lot of things happening in June, by the way. I don't know what was in the what was going on in June, which made everything in the year happen at the same time. Um, but as we were talking about with Bakhmut and the you know the the severe severe losses taken by the Wagner Group, they kind of set the stage for the next big story, which was on June twenty third. It was the insurrection. The insurrection. Uh, what did they call it? The march for uh, justice or something like that. <laughs> March for Dignity? No. I think it was the March for Justice. I don't know. It, do, it doesn't matter. But the, the Wagner group um, kind of occupied the city of Rostov and began marching on Moscow. When we say occupied, by all accounts, the Rostov authorities and the people in Rostov loved Wagner and happily threw them a parade. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. Like they showed up. Uh, what it was was the, the the Russian Ministry of Defense and a few other high-ranking uh, officials were down in Rostov for a meeting. Um, at the time, uh, they were trying to basically dismantle the private military companies and absorb them into the Ministry of Defense. Um, Wagner, under Evgeny Prigozhin, wanted to prevent that. They wanted to maintain their independence. So they moved in to try and capture the Russian defense ministry and the high-level officials that were there and force a concession out of them. Um, apparently, they were tipped off and got out a couple hours beforehand, though there is still video of Prigozhin meeting with other high-ranking officials in a very uh, Proving way, it didn't seem like it didn't seem like they were necessarily um, hostile to each other. It was, you know, a show of force more than anything else. When this plan A failed, they began rolling the tanks onward to Moscow until, at one point, um, they stopped. Um, apparently, Prigozhin had been offered something in exchange for ending his insurrection and we didn't really know what it was but we know how it ended up which was on august 23rd one month later Prigozhin and the other high-ranking members of Wagner group its uh, main commanders were in a plane flying over russia they had just done some kind of diplomatic stuff from africa because they were that's where they made most of their money was in various african countries um and they were shot down and everyone on board was killed, therefore ending the story of the Wagner Group and Yevgeny Prigozhin for good. I don't know. What did we learn from this? <laughs> we'll talk about this a, a little bit more in the what did we think would happen and did it section. The first thing that kind of came to mind is that Putin has very effectively consolidated the, the power vertical, as criminologists like to call it, around himself even more tightly than it was um at the beginning of the the full-scale invasion. Uh, Putin has absolutely no even really visible sycophants at the moment beyond his very reliable, drunk body double, Dmitry Medvedev, and of course the, the usual host of propagandists. But it really showed that the, the Putin regime and, and Putin himself uh, was incredibly sensitive to the so-called mill blogger, the military blogger criticism. 
that had been leveled uh, at his prosecution of the war thus far. The military bloggers, and we've talked about this kind of subculture before in Russia, were military and military connected, well, bloggers, basically, uh, that would often report the news from uh, the Russian front lines in a more, let's say, straightforward, if not honest, way than uh, official Russian propaganda channels would. And of course, more than the, the Ministry of Defense was willing to admit. And this won them a lot of respect in Russia for uh, being able to criticize the the prosecution of the so-called special military operation at all. And what we learned after Prigozhin was uh, murdered by Putin is that that kind of criticism is not welcome. Uh, not even constructive pro-Russian nationalist criticism, it's not welcome. The only thing Putin appreciates is deference to Putin. And step out of line uh, and, you know, drive a tank towards Moscow. <laughs> and his patience turns out to have very lethal limits. Yeah, that was the most interesting part of it um, at the time and also looking back was that in the first few hours of this, it seemed like people didn't know what the rules were. Um, a lot of people were refusing to comment. Um there was some uh, sympathy within the Russian army because, of course, Wagner Group was, you know, a very celebrated group within the Russian military. And like we said in Rostov, when Wagner showed up, uh, the police, the army, the the, co the the common citizenry, they all welcomed them like heroes. Uh, so it wasn't much of an occupation. And it there's a few hours there where it looked like it could have just been a direct conflict between Wagner and the defense ministry and may the best man or most vicious man win. But then wait those few hours when Putin gave his speech a few hours later, his wording was still, you know, gave a lot of wiggle room for what to do with Wagner group later, but ultimately did condemn the insurrection. And that is when everyone decided, oh yes, Putin, 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 we're, we're going to, we're you're going to deal with these uh, insurrectionists in the name of, of Putin. And that really snapped everything into place where there were no, as they say, the other towers of the Kremlin, as it has always been. There are no other factions. There are no other power groups. It's all it's condemned. Just it's just a single person. Look at Stalin. And I'm going to be honest with you, folks. You can kill a single person. It is not impossible. Doesn't matter how many fucking bunkers he goes into. You can murder a single human being. It is not all that complicated. Yeah. And the way we put it at the time was the old system of Russia was over. Um, the last of these independent people were gone. Prigozhin, gone. The a lot of like the technocrats were nowhere to be seen. A lot of them fled the country at the beginning. The oligarchs the completely cowed. The oligarchs aren't saying anything except to try and, you know, try and not get sanctioned as much as they've been sanctioned while at the same time not making Putin angry either. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. And, and we still have no idea who Putin's successor could possibly be. Absolutely. And this just makes any post-Putin reality in Russia even more dire. Because uh, like I started to say, like with Stalin, he was known for being you know, a very personalist leader. 
but they were still, you know, it was there's still some level of collective leadership that when he died, there was a short list of people who were there to kind of step into place and of course murder each other to to get to that place, but get there eventually. Um it was it was predictable that'd be one of like five people. And even beyond that, um, behind Stalin was still the machinery of the Soviet state and bureaucracy. Um, I'm not sure that machinery exists in Russia. Uh, it's insane to there was a there's a story from um, the Yanukovych years here in Ukraine that um, uh, a friend of a friend relayed this. He, the, the friend of a friend was a business owner. And uh, he told the story of how he had uh, a couple of guys uh, from the presidential administration go to his business, which was some minor, it was some local business in Kiev. It was not some giant industry turning millions of millions of dollars in profits or revenue or whatever, just some local business. But Yanukovych still sent guys from the presidential administration to go down and uh, basically extort or, you know, face problems. Um, and at the time it seemed kind of absurd to me. Why would the president care about extorting some random business that I heard corroboration? And this was far, this was far from the only story of that type that I heard that Yanukovych was so personal and so petty, um, that he personally, uh, would order his thugs to like extort restaurants and stuff, not nothing on the, on a presidential scale. Um, in Russia, this problem has only metastasized, uh, the the it, Putin doesn't have to send people from his own administration to do this, but the entire system is built on him distributing um, the the spoils uh, from the very smallest local regional level to the highest offices in in Russia. Uh, it's quite simply impossible to imagine the Russian system existing past Putin's uh, past Putin's death. Or Putin's retirement, or Putin's anything, and I think the the events that we've seen since uh, Prigozhin's murder has only kind of accelerated that. Russia's only gotten more uh, oppressive. The sentences um, have only increased for people posting the mildest bit of of criticism. The Russian Supreme Court declaring that all gay people were terrorists. Um, there was this uh, near naked party or something in Moscow, which I wasn't quite sure what was illegal about it but there's i can it was know, rich can, people making putin look bad that's what was illegal about it was it. rich people make i think what they got them on is that it was encouraging deviant sexualities or something like that but yeah in reality what we know what the the actual problem was because mind you um the people who attended that party are the closest that putin can get to having an electorate like those are the the wives and sons of the people that he cares about uh and the main thing that the, the only thing that they were really guilty of is the fact that news of this party got out and uh it was criticized for being profligate during uh, a war during wartime, as Russian propaganda keeps calling it an existential war somehow for Russia. 
Um, that that was the only really bad thing uh, about it. You can't make the tar look bad in any circumstance. Um, even now, if before you could get away with it, if you're rich and powerful or had a rich and powerful daddy, and even now that will no longer protect you. Uh, daddy is just as scared of the tar as every other serf in the empire is. Yeah. So the prediction there of you know what will will the new system be, and the new system is just Putin. Our next big headline is the counteroffensive. And I mean, what more can be said about the counteroffensive that hasn't already been said? So throughout the year, there was news stories of how Ukraine was gearing up to do a big counteroffensive, most likely in the southern direction. Some of the more uh, exuberant predictions <laughs> would be that this counteroffensive would cut all the way down to Melitopol. The more realistic ones were hoping to just break through the, the Surovikin line, the lines of defense created by the Russians uh, to protect this area in Zaporizhia and in the Zaporizhia and Donetsk regions. There was all this buildup of uh, troops and equipment and people training and fancy new European tanks until it all began on June 4th. Many people were saying that this was not ready enough. Other people were saying, and I agree with this second uh, analysis, that it just took too long. While the Russians were, you know, slowly grinding away at Bakhmut and all the intention was on Bakhmut. They were building these lines of defense. They, if the attack had come sooner, then those lines of defense not, would not have been there to defend it. But also the equipment to do the offensive wouldn't have been there. So it was a very unfortunate balance of the means, the opportunity, and the will and the strategy. The Americans really wanted, you know, this big combined arms attack against a single point on the Russian line where it was the strongest, which was Orihiv. And the Ukrainian forces were able to get through that first line of defense that were there and poke holes in the second line of defense, but mostly stopped after that point and could go no further, which is the scenario that they're in right now. So there's a pretty large bulge in the Russian line where this counteroffensive took place, but they are currently figuring out what to do from there. And really not too many great answers. The lines did not really shift. Um, like you said, there was a tiny hole punched in one portion of the Eastern Front. Um, nothing really moved in the South. Nothing really moved in the North. Nothing even moved in the East. Um, I think to, to set aside uh, discussions of blame and what have you, I think it's pretty fair to, to say that the counteroffensive did not achieve the goals that either the Americans or the Ukrainians or anyone really was hoping, except for perhaps the Russians, um, who have had all the more time to uh, bunker down, to build, to lay more minefields, build more trenches, up their defenses, uh, and that was successful. They've managed to uh, more or less hold what they've held. Um, of course, it's not to say it was completely static. Uh, Ukrainian forces did make very minor gains here and there. But again, um, there was no uh, th there was no explosive change. It wasn't anything like the liberation of Kharkiv Oblast, where you just had uh, basically the entirety of the Russian forces there. Uh, tuck and run, uh, nothing, nothing like that. But 
On the other side of this discussion, which is far less discussed um, because I guess it just didn't get enough uh, attention, was that in the same time frame from the end of the capture of Bakhmut until now, the Russians have had like two, like three, four offensives of their own. Each one of them began with a bunch of bring about how um, the Russians are going to sweep into Zaporizhia or, you know, cross the Dnipro River back to Kherson or take Kupiansk and go back to Kharkiv and capture Kharkiv within two months. All for each of those rounds of boasting to fall into nothing. The Russians have basically accomplished absolutely nothing from the fall of Bakhmut until now. Including quite a number of assaults in uh, Avdiivka. Yeah, so that that brings us into kind of our last story. We can kind of wrap it into everything, or last update, we can kind of wrap it into everything else, is that the last thing that they're going over for the year was Avdivka. Um, also has the honor of being the last thing that uh, we covered on this podcast before the, the war started, because I was, was there shortly before the beginning of the full-scale invasion. And this battle for Avdivka has been going on since October, and we've been emphasizing this so many times, but this is a very, very small amount of land. And really, since the beginning of December, the Russians have only advanced about one tree line in any direction. Uh, Over hundreds, over thousands of corpses to take one tree line. I mean, the estimate is that the, the Russians have lost multiple tens of thousands of troops trying to take Avdiivka. Um, when they, they really, they kind of seriously started sending these, these mass assaults in October, and it has not gained them anything. Uh, again, Avdiivka, as I, we've mentioned on this pod many times, is quite practically walking distance from downtown Donetsk. It's really not that far from kind of the, the, the center or one of the centers of Russian power in Ukraine for the past decade now, um, or near decade. It'll be a decade next year, I suppose. Uh, and yet they, they have not been able to, to even dislodge Ukraine from there, from basically their doorstep. Which is also why holding on to Avdivka is quite important. A lot of the organization of Russian uh, manpower and material is happening in Donetsk City, and Avdivka is a place that is close enough to Donetsk City in order to attack it, to hit it with missiles, artillery, etc. And that's really why the battle is so important. And even some Russians will say that even with all the losses, to them it has been worth it because because it has uh, negated Evdivka's ability to do counter-battery fire, to target warehouses, to target uh, troop movements into that city. So there's that side of it as well. Is it worth the thousands of lives that the Russia expelled in in order to do that? According to them, obviously, yes. The battle for Evdivka is ongoing. They are still uh, conducting assaults against that town. On pretty much a daily basis, uh, they, they, they there have been no signs that they intend to let up on their assault of of Divka, despite the fact that it their strategy is is clearly not working. They really need a win before the presidential elections early next year. Elections with air quotes, mind you. Yes, the presidential. It's still a important part of the 
the Russian political scene, any dictator still needs his legitimacy, or at least the appearance of legitimacy. So he, th- these elections are a way of affirming the legitimacy of Putin as the ruler, not you know select you know select from a field of candidates. But being able to make a win before the election is very important for them, and I think that they were they, they're not concerned about how much this is going to cost them in order to do that. Um, is it possible that Russia will take Avdivka? It's possible. I do think it's very much possible. Um, it's a very, yeah, very ugly fight. With war. Yeah. It's a very ugly fight. A lot of the reporting from people on the ground there is that it's not exactly going fantastic for Ukrainians either. They're holed up in this city. It is surrounded on three sides. There's only a few like small roads in order to bring supplies into the city, although it is not quite as controlled as the road into Bakhmut. It is a longer road, whatever. Though I will say, um, even with the, and Evskivka has been the hottest uh, point in, in the war basically since um, they've uh, started this, this assault on the city. Uh, and yet, uh, Zelensky, that is uh, President Zelensky, still managed to visit it, which is insane to me. I know is, where he was in Avdivka, and like his ability to be killed by a Russian FPV drone was extremely high <laughs> where he was. Um, I absolutely. I don't know. I don't know if it was a great idea for him to be there, actually, but. That's one thing that has really been part of this war effort is Zelensky's willingness to go into the thick of things. So, uh, yeesh. <laughs> but yeah, um, the, the, the other side of Avdivka is the army has learned its lesson from Bakhmut. Uh, there, like I said earlier, there was the question in Bakhmut of, are they staying there too long? Are too many people dying? And that is very much being applied to Avdivka right now. Uh, Zaluzhny stated quite recently that, like, we're not going to make a point of this. If we don't think we can hold Avdivka, we're pulling out before it becomes too much of a problem. We're not going to uh, hold on to dear life to this city uh, just for the propaganda win. If it looks like there will be uh, losses that are unacceptable, we'll leave. And I think that is a very, very important, um, very important stance to go into this because yes, I do think that Avdivka can hold um, for at least a while. And I think that even if the Russians can't capture it by the time of the election, they may let up. They may be less willing to, you know, throw every human body they have available at the city. So maybe that's the time limit when things will will be met less severe uh but i it's very good to know that the army is keeping it in mind that preserving the lives of soldiers is more important than preserving the city of Avdivka. and that's pretty much all of the major headlines uh directly related to the war um that occurred this year uh, of course, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of stories of individual and personal heroism and martyrdom that our podcast is simply not equipped to go into. Uh, but even if a given battle or a given portion of the front 
isn't getting uh, into the headlines, isn't being covered. That doesn't mean that there aren't um, incredibly brave men and women standing on those lines and uh, preventing the Russians from going any further. I think that's a very important thing to remember that uh, despite, you know, news sometimes being gloomy or objectives not being met, um, Ukraine still stands and is continuing to stand. And I think it's very important to to never uh, lose sight of that particular fact. And we'll kind of end the news roundup part of this by going over something that has been much more of an objective win. Uh, so in this last uh, episode, we're talking about how Ukraine was finally allowed to enter into negotiations to join the European Union and you know the various dramas around that, Hungary, etc. Listen to the episode. And I think the story behind that story is that last year, when Ukraine was given basically a wish list of things they have to do in order to begin the negotiation process of different reforms, and Ukraine fulfilled most points on that list, on some point... I, when you just say that, it makes it sound like it's just simple bureaucracy. It's just, you know, Brussels stuff. But in the real world, it translated into a lot of smaller reforms that were very, very beneficial to Ukraine as a country, war or not. And really, I think it's important to keep in mind that while we are fighting against Russia and the legacy of the Soviet Union, you know, a direct material island way. We also have to throw off the legacy of the material of the Soviet Union um, internally as well, and this you know checklist of things you have to do. That's the the method of doing it. Um, there was a lot of efforts to fight corruption this year, uh, which was and remains a problem, but it has been cracked down on of various inefficiencies in the system. To the point where, as a country at war with one fifth of the territory under occupation by a hostile occupier, Ukraine is still keeping its government together and beyond that, improving it into the next year and going into these um, accession, accession negotiations. And on a personal note, I can say that um, there have been a lot of stories this year about um, officials being arrested for bribery, MPs being placed under investigation. Um, and while others may look at these stories and point to them and say, look, Ukraine is so corrupt. To me, these stories represent something entirely different. And that is uh, the, the kind of culmination of Ukraine's efforts to uh, become a normal country where corruption isn't considered to be an acceptable and respectable life choice. Um, the fact that there are these stories at all, the fact that these investigations are being open at all, that charges are filed at all. Again, all of this points to the fact that um, the culture of Ukraine, especially in governance, is changing. Uh, people are starting to see or are starting to um, really try and combat this issue uh, that the the people engaged in this behavior no longer have impunity and that you can't just rob the country blind anymore without someone noticing and trying to hold you accountable for it. Yeah, of course, there's still problems. There's still problems with the military commissariat, the, the conscription system. There's problems with procurement. There's still problems with a lot of things. These things do not happen overnight, but the direction that things are going in is positive. Slowly but surely.
So now I want to ask, there, we began the year by making predictions, and let's look back on how much those predictions panned out. And I made a very conservative prediction, which was that this would not be the end of the war this year, but it would show us what the end of the war would look like. And I think we have reached that point. With Evdivka, the Battle of Evdivka, after that, there's nothing else that sticks out as an obvious place for a kinetic warfare to take place. And we'll be looking at what Zeluzhny in his Economist article was talking about as positional warfare of long lines of trenches, Ukrainians in one trench, Russians in the other trench, and very little gain in either way until eventually one side can no longer sustain it. This will be due to uh, supply, funding, uh, morale, um, the political considerations. One way or another, one side would have to break, and until then, not much kinetic changes until that point. And right now, what we're seeing is that uh, Ukraine is building corresponding trenches on the other side of the Suravikan line, um, building these huge uh, trenches, uh, fortifications, things that were called for by the army at different points, but people were afraid that by building these uh, very strong defenses, these very strong static defenses, that would be demoralizing of basically saying, we will not go further than this trench or don't plan on going further than this trench for a very long time, of people who are living in the area close to the front line, watching trenches being built behind them. That's scary, knowing that uh, you're, you're in the path of destruction, essentially. And this has been held off on but necessary for how the the war is going to look in the next year. Um, I guess other than Evdivka, that that's about it. The the Russians have nowhere else to advance in. The Ukrainian counteroffensive did not pan out as we hoped, and likely won't show up again until there's some very serious changes in supply strategy. Something so that's going to be where we're sitting. And it's going to be attrition warfare. It's going to be information warfare. We'll get into what I hope will happen in the next year in a bit. But that's my prediction. And that was, that was my prediction that we'd find out how things would go. And that's how things would go. Um, as for me, I was expecting a lot of more domestic instability in Russia. And to be fair, we did see a full-on insurrection. There was a column of tanks headed towards Moscow. Yeah, there was a column of tanks headed towards Moscow. Uh, but unlike uh, my predictions that this would ultimately lead to a domino effect um, that would kind of really shake the, the power vertical, really shake Putin's grasp on uh, the Russian populace, the opposite seems to have, it seems to have happened. Uh, Russians, when polled... Um, even by nominally independent polling agencies, don't seem to uh, have evinced any uh, particular desire to end the war. Um, they don't seem to uh, be really affected by the uh, really effective sanctions that that I've been told have been applied against Russia. Um, it doesn't. No, nothing seems to have bothered them. Um, 
like we discussed previously, uh, the uh, assassination of Prigozhin has only cemented uh, Putin's rule, Putin's fist around uh, the Russian levers of government. And I mean, I'm obviously disappointed by this, uh, but that's the that's the reality that Russia has um, turned out to be a lot more domestically stable than I. And I think I'm not the only one here that 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 thought this way um, than I expected. Yeah, the Prigozhin coup or insurrection or march of, of justice. At the time, I was asking myself, who else is there other than Prigozhin that could do something like this? And even at the time, the answer was really nobody. Um, and since then, we've it's really been underlined that Prigozhin, these kind of ultra-nationalists exemplified through people like uh, Igor Gherkin, who was arrested um, they were it as far as alternative power in Russia, and they are utterly crushed by the force of the Putinist system. You never hear, hear about Russian military blockers anymore. They're um, done. Yeah, they're, they're, done. they're done as a like force, <laughs> as as a, a kind of influential factor in Russia. They're kaput. Nobody else, with the lone exception of Kadyrov has either the ability or the will to do something like that. And Kadyrov is not going to go it alone. I, I'm pretty sure Kadyrov looked at Prigozhin's fate and drew conclusions of his own from that particular happening. Oh, yeah. At the time, there were even reports that like they were on their way there and may have made a choice when they got there of what they're going to do, but they, they never made it. Uh, there's no other alternative power structures in Russia. There's no other uh, politicians who even have a particularly strong base of support themselves. The only small crinkle in that is that some of these regional governors have been given more power by the central government, but selected as, well, first of all, they're only appointed. We're not talking about elected officials. And second of all, not only is their position entirely reliant on Putin, they're basically there to be scapegoats. So these regional governors are given the, the responsibility to do conscription and mobilization, for example. So if something goes bad, they will be blamed and not Putin. And it goes bad a lot. But it's, it's a classic imperial tactic. Satraps are never independent uh, politicians in their own rights. They serve wholly at the whim of the Tsar or the Emperor. So yeah, there is no other famous guy who's in position to place himself in control. There's no other organizations there's no comsomol there's no uh there's no party there's no anything other than only putin and for now that seems to be working okay for them um they have been able to increase their industrial capacity for military gear quite substantively in this last year um so people are you know doing their jobs but it's like the, the individual factory owner is not a political player so and There's the individual the factory owner also knows that he will not own his factory if he does anything that the Kremlin does not want him to do. How long can a country last when it is as large as Russia, as um, economically large, as physically large, as population large, as Russia survive while being solely the extension of the dictator? How long can that last? Who knows? Oh, well, here are the sirens. So happy new year, everybody. 
This is, for the record, I believe the third or fourth siren for the day. Yeah, um, it's going rough. Going rough. We're recording this on New Year's Eve, if anyone's keeping track. Um, and that brings us to kind of the last uh what 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 did we think would happen? Um, and that is uh the end of the war. And I don't mean that we expected the war to end this year. Um, but Anthony, as you said, we've now seen the shape of the war to come. Um, and I, I personally wanted to add my own observations here that uh the or rather uh I wanted to say that the the observations that I've uh, made of the war uh, so far have confirmed that this war will not end until Putin is no longer in power. Um, there doesn't seem to be a domestic factor that will do it. Um, Ukrainian uh, military force alone does not seem to be enough uh, to end the war as much as I wish it would. Uh, international pressure doesn't seem to be enough to, to end the war. A combination of all of these things doesn't seem enough to end the war. Um, this war will only end with the physical death of Vladimir Putin and not a day sooner. Yeah, because the thing with this extreme centralization is that as much as we, you know, like to talk about Russia as this, you know, basically authoritarian society, it didn't always look the way that it does now, even in Soviet times. And the only way that this hyper, hyper centralized system, this hyper totalitarian system at this point has been able to sustain itself is by justifying itself through the war. Um, if there's no war, even Russians will ask, why is, why is there nothing besides Putin? But because Russia is you know defending its existence as a country, as they like to, to say, then it gives Putin carte blanche to do whatever he wants in order to solidify his power. So what do you want? And mind you, um, the assassination of Prigozhin shows that he's willing to break um, what in Russian culture is considered quite serious um, brotherly bonds. Uh, the mafia culture uh, that kind of permeates the Russian elite and a lot of base Russian culture as well. Um, has been shown the has been completely violated by Putin. He doesn't, he will never respect a subordinate. He won't even pretend to respect subordinates, um, is what the assassination showed. And yet, uh, this giant public violation of norms, um, for Russia at least, has not resulted in any, uh, any moves to unseat him. Instead, it's had the opposite effect. So the war and Putin need each other. If Putin dies, well, the system without its only factor, if that if that's taken away, then everything goes into utter chaos. And the war will have no choice but to mostly end at that point. Like I'm sure some will be still attacks and all that. But the country cannot sustain a war without Putin at its head. And Putin cannot sustain himself as its head without the country at war. They're intricately linked at this point. Um, so unless Putin see, wants to develop a quote unquote off ramp, as people want to say, but there's no off ramp for him at this there's, point. There's, there's no off ramp for him at this point because the level of centralization, it, the current system is the war. No two ways around that. So what was the, what was the replacement after the old system of the towers of the Kremlin and, you know, in imperial pluralism? It's just the war. And that takes us into what we actually think will happen if we're not looking towards the end of the war anytime soon. Well, that starts with the big question of 
the U.S., the upcoming U.S. presidential election. Right now, we are in a state where American funding for Ukraine is officially so far at an end. When Congress left session for its Christmas holidays, they did so without reaching an agreement to fund Ukraine any further. Now, I do think that when they come back into session, they will resume Ukraine funding in some form or another. There'll probably be, you know, different things attached to it that the Republicans demand, but I think that it's coming back. But looking forward in the year, we have the elections. It will be Donald Trump as a Republican candidate. Only in the states where he will legally be allowed to run. Yeah, it's... We'll see how that goes. If Trump wins, we are screwed. (laughs) The Trump world is currently filled with people who have a deep disdain for Ukraine. Now, of course, as always, you know, the Trump unpredictability, he may have a weird conversation with somebody, some Ukrainian might get into his ear at some point, some Russian might trip over his shoes one morning and he could change his mind entirely. But we're not going to count on that. Right now, uh, Trump, as well as every frontrunner that could be behind him if he for some reason is not able to run, with the exception of Nikki Haley, is even more anti-Ukraine than he is. There is very little chance that if the Republicans win in the fall, that 2025 will continue, uh, will continue aid for Ukraine. And up until then, the Republicans will be playing all kinds of politics like they did with this over Ukraine funding of we want this, we want that. And if we don't get it, then Ukraine can 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 push off. Now, I personally don't believe that uh, Trump will win the presidency. I don't I, I uh, am fairly positive that uh, Joe Biden will rent, win re-election. However, uh, Ukraine funding, especially in light of um, the the Israeli assault on Gaza has uh, clearly been revealed as a secondary or even tertiary priority uh, for American politicians. They are willing and ready to um, abandon Ukraine aid if it benefits them politically. Um, there are some Congress people that are uh, dead set on helping Ukraine, that this is their their whole thing, that, that they spend um, a significant amount of their legislative efforts on uh, trying to get Ukraine aid and more aid. However, that number is not enough to overcome the, the general inertia that the American system has uh, towards um, supporting aid for Ukraine. That's, that's what we've seen. Um, a report came out just the other day about um, Biden sidestepping Congress to uh, authorize uh, artillery um, munitions transfers to Israel. Uh, there are options for the Biden administration to take right now, even without Congress, um, to help Ukraine. But support for Ukraine is a political football, uh, which means it's simply not all that important. It also takes more political capital to risk doing runarounds to do Ukraine aid than it is to do Israel aid. And exactly. There's no strong moral position that Ukraine needs to be supported at all costs, figure out a way, etc. All of that rhetoric that uh, the U.S. has Ukraine's back for as long as it takes and so on. It's just that it's just rhetoric Uh, support, constant steady support from the United States simply cannot be relied upon. 
And yeah, that I think is actually the biggest danger in this coming year. So I don't know. Write your congressperson. I don't know. But at the same time, it's being matched with more moves in Europe in the other direction, which is I think the Europeans noticed that America was beginning to drop the ball and it's time for them to step up. Uh, in these last few months, Germany has really stepped up more um, and has promised uh, more aid in this coming year than in the previous one. Netherlands in Poland, as we've been talking about with the elections, their their previous government, which was supportive, but was still willing to do anti-Ukraine stuff to appeal to their base, uh, has been replaced with uh, a liberal government, which is much more reliable for Ukraine. Um, Finland, the Nordic countries, Italy even... Czechia. Czechia really stood out in this previous day of basically throwing Russia the bird over being summoned to the UN about their supply of weaponry to Ukraine. It's We still have Hungary to worry about and we have Slovakia to worry about, but overall the Europeans have, like I said, stepped up where America has stepped down. Is that enough? I don't know. These issues with shells... Only about half of the artillery shells have been promised by the Europeans have made it to Ukraine. A lot of the industrial production of these things has begun, but are not going to be fully uh, fully going until even next year in some cases. Uh, so if that's fully enough for a full-scale industrial war without without America and only the Europeans, probably not. But it is something, and the Europeans can kind of drag America back in just out of sheer embarrassment at some point. How uh, currently there are massive protests um, in Serbia, uh, in Belgrade. There is an off chance that um, Serbia might rid itself of its uh, incredibly pro-Russian government. Uh, that's it is an outside chance but given the the current state of international support for ukraine i'm willing to hold out a little hope yeah and on that point the other thing going into this year is is that we have been dealing with a lot more stuff happening around the world that is taking attention away from ukraine so gaza of course uh, venezuela was threatening invasion recently before backing off I mean, we saw Azerbaijan uh, genocide the entirety of Artsakh. Yeah, we can't leave that out. Just a few months ago, we saw the utter ethnic cleansing of the Armenian people from Nagorno-Karabakh, which got very little attention from anybody. We have wars in Burma. We have Iran. uh, We have the Houthis in Yemen. We have just massive devastation in Sudan, in the Congo. Sudan, uh, Niger, the entirety of the Sahara Desert, the Zahal region has been having extreme turn of political upheaval and coups and revolutions. I was more of a religious guy. I would say that this, this all seems real, real concerning. Yeah, like we're watching an unzipping of the international order, as we've been talking about in previous episodes, and that will take attention away from Ukraine, that will take priority away from Ukraine that we have to fight against. And I guess this last part of the last part of the stew here is um, information warfare about the news, because as these different events take attention away from Ukraine, take priority away from Ukraine, um, 
it makes it harder for Ukrainians to get their stories out. And we don't have as much funding as the Russians do in this regard, which means that the Russians more and more, again, these last about three months or so especially, have meant that Russia has really been pushing its propaganda harder than I feel, at least from my own subjective experience, harder than any other time during the war. And beyond just Russian propaganda, a personal story after the the um, massive missile attack, uh, I was called up for a uh, media hit by only one news agency. Um, previously, even kind of sort of medium um, impact events would have at least four or five uh, knocking on my door and sending messages. Um, it is simply a fact that Ukraine is no longer a priority for major media organizations. We see that in the numbers as well. Every Ukrainian media outlet has been suffering regarding its readership. All of them <laughs> that I know of. There was a 40% drop on the on October, starting October 7th of 2023 there was a 40% drop uh, in the readership of uh, Envy's sister publication Ukrainska Pravda according to the numbers that I have available which is of course not surprising but there's no sign that those numbers will recover either yeah our numbers have gone down for the podcast KI's numbers have gone down there's just a general loss of interest in Ukraine and as we are going into this attrition warfare where information and support are even more important than it was during than during the more active um kinetic phase of things we need we're in this point where there's going to be a very long grind and during that grind there needs to be a lot of engagement uh with ukraine in order to keep um support high there needs to be a lot of uh support financially from different countries, which relies on public support. There's going to need to be a lot of industrial and all that, which is tied again to the financial. And without big stories like the Kherson uh, liberation to kind of build things up again, and there's not going to be stories like that for a long time, I don't think, it's, it's, it's going to be hard to keep the necessary energy in order to sustain attrition warfare. And the, the media side of that is a very important part of it. It's, it's, it's grim. It's really looking real grim. <sighs> Can we end on something positive? I know the listeners don't have any video, but I, I've just been staring at Anthony's face for about 30 seconds of absolute silence, trying to come up with anything at all positive to say about uh, 2024. Um, and I'm afraid I don't really have many many ideas it's it's pretty bad out there um like we just went over uh the world's pretty much tearing itself apart uh, u.s elections may or may not result in massive civil unrest um that's a giant open question uh and ukrainian uh, ukrainians are still going to be sitting on the front and dying and trying to hold the the literal legions and hordes that russia keeps throwing at their positions off um for just one more day as long as they can. At least I can say that, that Ukraine determination to stay independent and to stay free has not flagged. Um, even if world events have not exactly been kind to us, if uh, our actions haven't resulted in the results that we were hoping for, uh, Ukrainian determination and Ukrainian willpower has not 
dropped. Ukrainians will not surrender to Russia or submit in any circumstance whatsoever, because that would result in the death of Ukraine as a nation and as a people and as a culture. I will, for a positive note, return back to this issue of the Europeans. They are strengthening their backs more so than they have in the past, and I do think that can result in some positives that we may not even be able to foresee right now. Um, It is becoming more of a European issue, and they're taking it much more seriously as a European issue. And I think that in the form of support, maybe even in the form of media attention, if the Europeans decide to focus their gaze on Ukraine, once again, that could be I mean, they did figure out how to work around Orban. Yeah, just just tell them, just just ignore them entirely. So that's tell them to leave the room during the, the EU votes for Ukraine aid. Why don't you go drink, just, that works. get a drink of coffee? Why don't yeah. you just go get a drink of coffee while we just do get a this? coffee. Oh. We're going to vote. You, you get a coffee. It's fine. The adults have something to do right now. So yeah, I think whatever positives will come from 2024 will come from the European Union. And whatever energy is building up right now, whatever that develops into. So with that, I think we can close off this episode. We can close off the year. Say goodbye to 2023. If you'd like to support Ukraine more broadly, you can go to our link tree for various charities and sources of information. Please become politically engaged wherever you may be. You support Ukraine. It is flagging in a lot of places, especially the United States. If you would like to support us financially, you can go to patreon.com slash Ukraine without hype and join our supporters where most importantly, you can join our Discord channel, talk to us, give us ideas for episodes, ask us questions. So thank you very much to Deborah Grazer. The voices in my head are from Big Pharma, David Shepard, Giorgio, Ivana Kukratskaya, Michael Drucker, Anna Karen Person, Anonymous, Dennis Napalm, Devi, Dimitri Litvin, Etienne, James Burke, Jan, Janara, Jenny Louise, Kelvin Alberton. Marguerite, Michael Wickman, Mike Perone, PLM, Shieldwall, Silas Frank, T. Bart, Vivek, Adam Poppenheimer, Ada McDonald, Alex Grochmull, Anastasia, Barbara, Captain Technical, Chris Bennington, Daniel Spring, David Wall, Emily Bavona, Grace Kraus, Had to Laugh, Jacob Holm, James Wise, Jared Bradley, Jared, Julia Lindsay, Laurie... Laura De Leon, Levy Grove, Marianne, Matt Miller, Melissa Caselco, Anonymous, Noam Hart, Paul Bailey, Randy McNerlin, RDK, Sander Bongers, Sanjay, Scott Barry, Scott Gengris, Scott Tarkiuk, Steve Bien, Stuart Akers, Subtle Knife, Thomas Sobiek, Veronica, Victoria Leontaneva, and Wandering Lens. Thank you all very much. You have made this podcast and this year possible. With that, Happy New Year. Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. <laughs>